0: But moving on to something else you do or you've done in the past is you started up malaysian medics international so what is that why did you start it up
1: yeah. so actually it's, it's a very it's a very interesting story a very interesting part of my life as well so uh, just to explain to you imogen uh i did my pre-clinical years in malaysia and i transferred over to university of dundee for my year three year four year five so there is a very very special partnering partnership program in Malaysia and the UK, where the Malaysian university called IMU uh, partners to about twenty eight different medical schools all around the world, and we have, we have very close ties with the University of Dundee. So I spent my first two years of medicine uh, of medical school in Malaysia, and, and this is something this is something Imogen that might be of a quite significant interest to you. So in Malaysia, there was a problem when I was a medical student. There was a junior doctor crisis forming. And doc, junior doctors were actually being unemployed, so they had to wait up to a year, if not two years, to even get their FY one jobs. Now the problem came started quite a few years ago, where the government, the Malaysian government, with a good intention, wanted to increase the amount of doctors. Right, because there was a doctor shortages. There are quite a significant doctor shortage, like much as we see here in the UK. And they say, you know what? Let's artificially boost it up. Let's have lots of medical schools, okay? Let's have lots of medical schools. Let's have plenty of medical students. So overnight, over one year, they, all kinds of medical schools just pop up out of nowhere. And lots of them have very poor quality. Like genuinely, you can see, you can go to a high street and there's like a shop lot and that's a medical school. It's, it's quite laughable. There's only a few reputable institutions in Malaysia and they, they suddenly open up at one point, Malaysia had the most medical schools per capita, right, in the whole world. Uh, and they were churning out medical students like no, no one's like, like, like no one's like going out of fashion. So lots and lots of medical students. But the government did not raise the, the number of FY1 sports, right? They did not budget for more FY1 sports where they can pay. And then suddenly there was a lot of medical students that didn't have a job. And to make things worse, the specialty training pathway in Malaysia is not as clear as what it is as what it is here in the UK. So the training pathway is really not very clear. And you'll see this trend in most of the developing nations in Southeast Asia or even in East Asia. So it's on this backdrop where I realized as a medical student that there really wasn't a, a unifying student body to actually bridge this gap between the government and the medical students in Malaysia. And there was lots of Malaysian medical students in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in Ireland, uh, in Russia, and then also in, and, in Egypt. And there really wasn't anyone connecting any of them. You know? So lots of these students, they, they, they lose connection to their home. They don't know what's going home, going on at home. Even those at home have no idea what's going on in their future. So there was a lot of worry among medical students. And one day, you know, me and my, my, my girlfriend, who is now my wife then, just thought to myself, you know, hey, you know, this is not right. We got to, we got to do something about this. So we, we just brought together a bunch of people, and we, we say, okay, you know what? We're gonna start organizing a few events, bringing in people from the government, to speak to medical students. And we us, we conducted ourselves quite professionally. We, we, registered ourselves as a nonprofit organization. We had a bank account. Uh, did lot. We had actually multiple activities as well. So we ended up running. A few important activities throughout the two years. I was uh, three years. I was I was chairperson, and we we, we even um, we even organized the largest medical school event in Southeast Asia. Perhaps there was probably about thousand two hundred students from thirty eight, from, from sorry from twenty four countries from seventy three medical schools in that events. And we brought in the director general of health. We brought in the. Uh, the Directors General of Specialty Training in the Ministry of Health, and we really have a lot of these open conversations. So we connected medical students, we educated them of what's going on in the situation, and we really cultivated this sense of excellence among them. So we we want to hold ourselves up to a higher level, we just don't want to be a medical student that's just a mass-produced, copy-and-paste medical student. So that, that was fun. That was fun. I did, I did all of that in my second year up to my third year. And just one more year when I was in Dundee, then I passed on the, bat- the baton to someone else. So essentially, it's much there was a need. Someone needed to do something about it. I chose to put on, put together a whole team of people to do it. And it's not an effort done by myself, by the way. There was a big team of uh, medical students. The, the team was quite big. At one point, we had 40 people running three different organizations in Malaysia. United Kingdom and Ireland and uh, we, we, we were all doing our own activities and we had an ambassador in every single school as well. So good times, it's quite an impactful thing and I'm very happy to see that they're still carrying on the tradition and they're growing year on year. That's so
0: cool, I didn't know any of that and I didn't know obviously about the Malaysian junior doctor problems and yeah. I mean just like little shops popping up and yep, yeah, that's a medical school
1: it's terrible i mean there was a there was a medical school at one point they had four intakes a year so they had four intakes a year each intake they took 200 people so they all these medical schools operated on a for profit basis and they do not have the clinical the, the the teachers the lecturers were not doctors at all they were random uh they were random people from different specialties they are not qualified the students barely had any clinical exposure. It, it was a mess, and the the that medical school that had four intakes they bankrupted themselves, and half halfway through their medical school, suddenly the medical students realized, oh, our medical school is gone. <laughs> I have no more medical school, and it was an absolute crisis. It was an embarrassment really, and we had we had to we had to like, we had to give find find homes for these medical students essentially and. Not great, not great. Which is why there's always caution to be had. In the UK, it's not as simple as just increasing the number of medical school spots because we had a bit of a junior doctor crisis as well. Australia had it as well, where junior doctors would have to wait for quite a while before they could get their jobs. And it's, it breaks the narrative where you know doctors, they always think that the doctors always will have a the job, will never suffer from employment crises. Uh, but that, that problem changed the whole narrative.
0: Yeah, well, is it, is it still the same now? Or is it improved?
1: I think things are getting a bit better because all these terrible medical schools are, well, bankrupting. <laughs> they, they, they're, they're just dropping like flies. Just popped up like mushrooms, die like mushrooms. Um, but I think things are getting better. There is still a bit of a delay, but things are getting better. Uh, yeah, but a lot of planning needs to happen. You know, it's not, it's not just increase one thing and then cause a problem downstream. You have to work together to bring everything up at once
0: yeah it's definitely a tricky balance to have but um yeah popping up like mushrooms is is clearly not not the answer that that's really interesting because I didn't know anything about that and about I mean having that many medical students from all over the world is just it's just incredible it's amazing and it's good that it's still it still carries on now um but the other thing you do or the other thing you're interested in and I think it's good to have interests that aren't just clinical your clinical work so ai uh, or health tech development so my dad absolutely loves ai he's literally a big ai geek um so (laughs) what would you say has been your favorite recent ai or health tech development
1: now the first thing to understand imogen and this is really from the point of a doctor who's actually working in the field ai is at, at an inflection point what i mean is we are very close to an exponential growth of how AI will affect uh, affect how we live on a day-to-day basis. The problem with AI right now is that the NHS and our data infrastructure is not quite ready for it. You have to understand that AI lives and dies by the quality of data that you fits it. And right now, the the systems that we have in the NHS is not quite ready to to actually develop or even deploy any artificial intelligence. that is where the greatest bottleneck is. The, there is not quite enough literacy of AI among doctors just yet. Lots of doctors have no idea what AI is. <laughs> lots of doctors have no lots of doctors, a significant minority do, but the majority of them don't really quite understand what AI is. How could they best use AI to improve healthcare? And that's one of the things I'm quite passionate about, increasing the education and the awareness of how AI can be used, as well as trying to drive changes to to prepare ourselves for AI.
0: Well, it's kind of cool. It's kind of scary, I have to say. All this stuff does scare me a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a lot of things. But, but let's talk about the reality of things, Imogen. Uh, 80, 80 to 90% of healthcare AI algorithms fail. That's the current status quo. Lots of people put in a lot of money and they, the AI algorithm simply does not work. It's just not deployable, not feasible, no one wants to use it because it's too clunky, the data system is not right, it's too much effort to do too little for too little benefit. So that's the nature of things. And one of the biggest problems of why this doesn't work is because there's often a working group that develops this AI on their own without consulting the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, the people who will end up using this AI. they develop it, they spend a lot of money only for it to say, you know what? Fantastic, this algorithm works, but it doesn't help me as a doctor. It makes my life harder. I'm not gonna use it. So a lot of, con- a lot of money, time, effort, blood, sweat and tears could have, been, could have just been saved if there were, they just had this clear conversations right from the start, honest, unbiased feedback. And that's why I started doing this uh, Adopt a Doc uh, initiative really to really have these conversations with health not just AI companies but also health tech companies to just have a a, a clear clear and conversation with me and my team to to make sure that, that they, this, they perform a sanity check to make sure that whatever they're doing you know they're doing it in the right way or I can give them a bit of a better focus of how their tools can be used better in the clinical field and how do you take, how can they repurpose their tools so
0: yeah wow i have a lot to say about that because oh gosh so well 90 percent of healthcare ai fails um that's that's very interesting and how not communicating with the doctors you'd think that'd be a really obvious thing to do but uh, i was talking to someone else on the podcast who uh, has their own health tech company and they were saying how it's really important to focus on the prop the problem not creating a solution that doesn't really matter. You've got to think what's yeah. the problem and then come up with the solution. So if you haven't asked the doctors, what problems do you face? Then whatever you make probably isn't going to help. And so that's, that's something that's really interesting. But another thing I've noticed, not necessarily with AI, but just with technology in general is well, for example, phones, um, mobile phones, when they probably first came around, people have, now learn how to use them and most people have one most people know how to use it well and properly and use it for four hours a day but with a lot of things i found that you can change the technology or change the way something's done you can't necessarily change the people like you could have the amazing booking system ai or something books all your things for you but if the actual human doesn't turn up to the meeting then it's all—it's all kind of pointless. You can't—you can change the people to a certain extent. Yeah. But you can't change them as quickly as the technology is changing. Yeah. And I think that's the another bottleneck we're going to start seeing because the technology and the AI is going to go like that, and the yep. people are just going to carry on going like that, and they can't quite catch up. You
1: can't quite catch up. Yeah, exactly. And it's a—it's quite an interesting problem as well. Healthcare itself is a very challenging field to to challenge, to tackle because there's a lot of regulations behind things. So let's say the the technology already exists in the law, in the law firms, in the banking firms, in the finance industry, it already exists, it's already been deployed in the manufacturing industries, it's all being done, but we don't have that in healthcare, simply because there is a more rigorous standard that we hold ourselves up to, patient data, patient confidentialities, patient safety, uh, rate tape upon rate tape upon rate tape. So innovation, moves at a slower pace at, in healthcare. So that's one problem. And what you've just described is very true. Adoption among doctors, just because you think that product is great doesn't necessarily mean that the other person thinks it's great. <laughs> and they might, and here's, here's a very unique phenomenon in in health tech development. It, you don't, a doctor might say, okay, you know what, I need this. And a health tech developer then say, okay, I'll make this for you. But what they realize is that the doctor, even if you create this product A for this doctor B, the doctor will still not use the tools very well. Because sometimes the problem is so complex that it's difficult for us to verbalize and to explain what, is, what actually we need. So it's not just a simple of, oh, what do you need? I need this. I built this for you and you use this. It's actually, uh, you have to take a more general approach and really see what's going on, examine examine what's the situation, really do some in-depth in depth diving into the, the problem and really develop a tool from that point of view. And, and I think that's what's lacking. I think that's what's lacking because there isn't that collaboration with doctors and there, there just isn't as much awareness of the problems that we have. So, what, we, what, what this end up with is we have plenty of digital tools that we use in the NHS that we just, that's very clunky, completely not user-friendly. We work around all these tools and we, we, don't, we don't use it as best as we can. So we use up to like 10% of the, a feature of a, of a certain platform and 90% of the features we don't touch at all. So
0: Yeah, it, someone else has said that on the podcast, how people in healthcare are much lower to, as you say, adopt the new technology or the new way of doing things because it is such a there can be such big problems and one solution isn't gonna solve it unfortunately so yeah it's very interesting to talk about and i'm not really sure what what the kind of outcome of that is but that leads me nice onto the next question really so just in a short kind of succinct uh, explanation what do you think the nhs will look like in the future
1: I think it's really hard to say. Um, there is every there is a feeling that the current NHS has reached a point that it's really quite unsustainable. And things are only going to get harder. Why I say this is that everyone is getting older. That everyone's going getting older. The boom the baby boomer generation is now moving to 70 years old, 80 years old, and there's, there, there's a big chunk of them. So if you're a doctor working in a hospital, you will realize that the real reason why we have so much bed pressure is because there were a lot of elderly, frail patients occupying the bed, and we can't discharge them home just yet because it's not safe to do so. There's no, not enough family support, and we need to organize social care for them. And the process of arranging a social care can range from a month to six months. The longest we've had was almost a year just to arrange social care for the patient to be discharged home safely. And everyone's just going to get older. Everyone's going to need more and more and more and more and more. And money is a limited resource. And manpower is a limited resource. So I'm not sure how things are going to happen. One thing to say is, this workforce crisis is not going to miraculously solve itself. So, they can only churn out a limited rate of doctors. They can't increase it exponentially to meet the projected demand. So, the only way to to sustain this is that a doctor needs to increase his or her productivity. A doctor needs to do a lot more with less time. And the only way to do this is with technology. You need to utilize technology to solve the problems that we face right now. We spend too much time documenting, doing administrative stuff. We spend very, very little time caring for patients or actually think and problem solve things. Lots of, lots of inefficiencies in in making referrals, making referrals, ordering tests, lots of things like this that really can be streamlined to improve our productivity. And I think if there's if there's a way for the NHS to succeed and survive, that's what, what's needed
0: yeah oh gosh there's a lot to say there isn't there and I think it's it's good to look to the future and think how is this going to how is the NHS going to look because it's such a big part of um, well everyone everyone relies on doctors and it's a big part of um, government funding as well just in general and I think yeah it's not going to magically solve itself all the problems that we're seeing now everyone getting older as well i had half a day in a geriatric ward Mm. or elderly care ward and uh i could even see it then there were patients in there they'd all been in there over a month Mm. and they probably only needed to be in there less than a week but because it was their first major fall or first major incident they could as you say they couldn't get help at home and they needed to work out a care plan or going into a care home and it just takes a long time to do that and there isn't necessarily that communication between the care side of things and then the actual hospital side of things and so yeah people are staying in hospital really really way longer than they need to be and so other people who do need the hospital beds can't come in and that problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger so I think that's definitely that's definitely going to be a big part of the future problem
1: I think there are a few important things to a few innovations that actually are very hopeful. Actually, there is the hospital at home initiative where patients actually get treated at home, and doctors actually come, doctors and nurses actually come to their house to do a bit of a ward round, just making sure that everyone's okay in the community. I think that's very very important. I think that's really going to be one one way we can at least solve thirty percent of our big crises. Wearables things that can actually monitor someone's vital signs even from home and using artificial intelligence to monitor that as well for you to to reduce the manpower of someone having to sit in front of a computer and look at all these readings yeah so there are there are things that are really happening right now they're successful happening uh i hope it just gets faster (laughs) that's all
0: i think that's a very good point to bring up and it it just we need to get faster technology coming into health tech systems health healthcare systems need to get faster and so yeah i can definitely see how that would help it and so to round off to finish off what would your top three tips be for how to get to where you are today
1: well top three tips is be resilient resilience is probably the most important thing you you don't need to be very smart you don't need to be very clever or talented but you do need to be very resilient you need to be able to survive you need to be resourceful. You need to learn how to, even with limited resource that you currently have, find ways to get things that, to solve the problems that you have. So as a medical school, as a medical student, how do you address your exams? You, you, you seek out your seniors, you speak to your peers, you form study groups, you look out for the right textbooks, the right internet resources, use your resources to, to increase your, your chances of success. And the last thing, and this is something I think, Imogen, are doing very well, is to be visible. If no, The world won't know how brilliant you are if you're not visible. If you're hiding away in your little corner, doing a lot of studying, but no one sees you for who you are, you're not, it, opportunities won't just come falling upon your lap. You need to be present, be in the line of sight of those that can give you opportunities and say, hi, my name is Imogen, my name is Derek, I... I, I, I'm a big fan of what you do. Let's talk a bit more. You know, and you, as, as you would already know, Imogen, everyone wants to help. So everyone's always happy to give you some of their time to, to, to include you in a research project, to include you in some shadowing. Be visible. But most importantly, those are the three top tips I can give to be successful. But if you really want to go far in life and really survive in this field, I think it's very important, most of all, to be kind to be very kind to yourself, to be very kind to yourself because there will be many days where you beat yourself up. You, you will make a mistake. You will make a mistake. You will fail. You will most definitely fail in, throughout your career, in your life. You may not fail in medical school. You might be a straight A student from A levels to first year, fifth, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, top of the class in your medical school. But one day you're going to make a big mistake. You can't, put, you can't predict that. And times like that, you need to be kind to yourself, very important. And you need to be kind to others. Everyone, everyone has their own struggles. And it's important to, when in doubt, just be kind. You never know, you never know what someone's going through.
0: That's all today from the Medicinity podcast. If you'd like to hear the best bits from all the other episodes, then head over to the Medicinity Instagram to find out more. Lovely. Oh, I think that that's amazing. That's amazing advice. So be resilient, be resourceful, be visible and be kind. And you, can. you, you can't go far wrong with those four.
1: You can I mean, go far wrong with those four. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's really helpful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been great to have you.